Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is generously hosted by 2d6.org. 2d6.org is one of the best sites on the internet for board game reviews, news, videos, commentary, and much, much more. That's 2d6.org. The Long View is also generously sponsored by GameSurplus.com. www.GameSurplus.com is one of the best online retailers that anyone can find anywhere. They will be happy to try and find any board game that you might be looking for. Whether it's a old out-of-print item, a hard-to-find import, or the latest hotness, Thor and his family will be happy to meet your board gaming needs. That's at GameSurplus.com where customer service is second to none, with a personal touch. And if you do order from Game Surplus, please tell them The Long View sent you. The Long View is also a proud part of the Dice Tower Network. The Dice Tower Network is the best place to go to find a board game podcast that will meet your interests. Whether it's old vintage games looked at with a humorous slant on Flip the Table, whether it's war games in the Hex Encounter, learning the hows and whys about board games through ludology, or learning how to play a great game through the How to Play podcast. The Dice Tower Network is home to great audio content and video content for all board gamers from all backgrounds. That's the Dice Tower Network. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and tonight I am very pleased to be joined by none other than Chad McCash. Uh, Chad, for those of you who might not be familiar uh, with him uh, from Board Game Geek, is actually a contributing member of the fantastic podcast called Hex Encounter. Uh, it's one of the, the best podcasts out there for wargaming. Uh, it's a member of the Dice Tower Network, which The Long View is also a part of, and Chad and, and his associates really are bringing something new to the Dice Tower Network um, by really focusing on war games. So when I looked at the Longview forums and people had started requesting some different games and somebody had suggested uh, Advanced Squad Leader, I thought to myself, well, who should I go to? And I actually posted that question. And one of the answers that I got was, well, you should maybe try and, and see if you can get Chad. So I sent an email off to Chad, um, and he was kind enough to respond to me very quickly and said, sure, I would love to talk about Advanced Squad Leader. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to uh, welcome Chad McCash and say, Chad, thank you very much for joining me tonight on The Long View. Oh, very happy to, Jeff. So, Chad, uh, you and I have had a chance uh, uh, to meet a couple of times. Um, we met, I, I believe, over at the Anglesteins and over at uh, uh, the evil one himself, Stephen Bonacore's house, um, at a game day over there as well. And we've had a chance to talk a little bit about our board gaming hobbying interests. And uh, you and I have discussed a few war games that we thought maybe we would, you know, want to talk about. And this was not one of them. Uh, <laughs> 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 but, you know, I, I know that there's such a huge following out there for Advanced Squad Leader. And uh, it's a game that has kind of fascinated me from a distance, uh, it is probably the best way that I can put it. And so, you know, since that was one that was requested, I thought, you know, I want to give that one a shot and talk with you about that. So I'm very glad that you uh, were willing to talk to me about that. And hopefully in the future, we can talk about some other great war games as well. So 
Uh, Chad, the first thing um, that I want to ask you is, for those people who maybe aren't familiar, can you maybe tell us a little bit about Advanced Squad Leader? Um, maybe a little bit about the game itself, perhaps a little bit about its history, um, and, and we'll kind of use that as a launching point at starting to look at this uh, really fascinating game. Sure. Um, ASL, well, maybe a, a little bit on the history. It uh, ASL started as Squad Leader back in 1977. Avalon Hill put together uh, or put out Squad Leader, brand new type of game, and it's a a World War II tactical squad level combat game. It uses geomorphic uh, hex maps, uh, the type of thing, geomorphic boards. That is, uh, I think the initial Squad Leader came with four boards. There was one with a forest, one with a town, one with a uh, village, and one with a mountain. And you could butt them up side to side or end to end, and you could have one long map or one big map, uh, just use one map at a time, half a map, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, and that gave people who designed scenarios a lot of freedom to mess around with the boards, and as they made more boards, gave, gave them more options. Anyway, um, at, its, at its root, um, Squad Leader is a game that, a war game that depicts uh, tanks and other vehicles and guns on an individual level. That is, each counter is one tank, one, you know, one, you know, anti-tank gun, uh, one bazooka, etc. Um, and then the, this, the counters for the, um, the infantry are individual leaders and individual squads or half squads or gun crews, that type of thing. And it gained quickly gained a lot of popularity. I was looking into it. They actually had four different printings of the game starting in 1977. Again, I'm talking about Squad Leader. And they came out with three additional uh, gamettes. That is, they had uh, Cross of Iron, Crescendo of Doom, and GIN Villa Victory to expand the system both in rules as well as to bring in additional nationalities and more boards, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very, very popular, very big seller for... Um, Avalon Hill, and then they made the decision, Avalon Hill made the decision, hey, you know what, let's take this to the next level. And in 1985, they brought out Advanced Squad Leader. And they were, because they were dealing with three different, I'm sorry, four different games, you know, Squad Leader plus the three gamettes. So they had four different rule books that uh, you had rules all over the place. So out comes Advanced Squad Leader, puts it all in a binder. Suddenly, we have a war game with a binder, and that's the thing that I think most people think of when they think of ASL. They're like, wait, that's the game with like hundreds of pages that you actually have in a three-ring binder, right? So, uh, and it's, as somebody who's played, um, you know, back in the 80s, uh, I was playing Starfleet Battles. I can say that, that there are other games that are in binders. So Starfleet Battles was one way back then, where if you collected everything, you also had a binder's worth of uh, rules. But ASL is very, very um, uh, known for being a binder game, that, that it's you know it's certainly not an easy game, and uh, but it's something that I think that's uh, once you get into it, once you understand how the systems works work rather, it's rather intuitive. So it's a a game where you're representing you know a, a fast and furious 10 to 15 minutes or something of an actual battle. It's based on the scenarios are based on actual conflicts or actual battles, stuff right out of, out of the movies, uh, stuff right out of books that. Uh, People take the time to actually track down exactly what type of, how many men were there, what type of weapons did they have, what type of tanks were involved, what was the terrain like, and they play these scenarios. So that's that's basically where it all kind of started. 
Yeah, and you know that's uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned you know the original squad leader because that was kind of my experience. Um, I actually started off by uh, playing squad leader uh, when I was much younger, and uh, I'm sure I wasn't playing it right. I'm sure there were rules that I was missing because you know even at the time I, I realized it was a really rules intensive game. This was you know this was a game that had that classic war game kind of rule book. You know, uh, rule two point one point four point three. You know section A, subsection C, you know, all of these kinds of uh, hyper-specific rules. But I remembered that even though that was very intimidating to me at the time, it was also very fascinating because, as you said, this was a war game on a small scale, which, you know, for me at least, this was kind of my first foray into that. You know, I, I had been used to playing games like Midway, um, you know, and, and games where you're playing on a much grander kind of a scale, whole fleets and aircraft carriers and, you know, a whole ocean. And so Squad Leader for me was a real departure because it gave me kind of that, that microscopic, you know, small view of, of the conflict. And I remember those boards, you know, very vividly because there was a lot of art on those boards. You know, you could, you could see the buildings and the buildings were different on the different maps. You know, everything was from an aerial view. Uh, you know, and you had hills and forests and roads and, and paths and things that were all on these maps. And so um, it really kind of was a, was a fascinating world to get into. And just even looking at the different counters, I remember, you know, amused me for quite some time, looking at just this huge variety of, uh, you know, leaders and uh, units and equipment, um, you know, everything that was kind of in there. So I, you know, I had some very fond memories of playing Squad Leader, um, so much so that I kind of rushed out and I got uh, Crescendo of Doom. And then I um, actually, I got uh, Cross of Iron next and then Crescendo of Doom and, you know, eagerly opened those and bagged and sorted all my counters and had everything ready. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't get through all of the scenarios, unfortunately. I, I think by the time I kind of got through Cross of Iron, I started to get a little bit of, you know, kind of rules fatigue, I think. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I just don't know whether my mind is disciplined enough for that. Um, but, you know, I had some very fond memories of solo gaming. Uh, you know, I, I, I played squad leader solo. Um, my family had moved uh, to Arizona. I had left all my friends behind. And so, you know, here I am, this, you know, 13, 14-year-old kid by himself. And... I had that wonderful catalog from Avalon Hill, and we actually had a local game store in Little Sedona, Arizona, and they had these games, and I could I could also order through the catalog, and so I spent just countless hours just with those boards set up, and just you know every night I would sit there and and try to puzzle through it, and I'd play one side and then the other, and so I was really fascinated. Um, I was also fascinated with some of the complexity. It's it's, it's really strange kind of a dynamic for me, Chad. This kind of on the one hand, it was very intimidating, and um, I was convinced half the time I was doing things wrong because of the the complexity of the rule set. But then at the same time, I was fascinated by it. You know, I remember the first time that I was looking at offboard artillery. You know, this mm -hmm. this notion of, you know, you, you you have to have someone there who's going to call in the artillery. And then you fire a spotting round, if I remember that correctly. And there was actually a, a counter for the spotting round. And then, you know, you, you'd consult some tables and you'd see where the spotting round, you know, landed. And then you could sort of, you know, call in corrections. And then you did the, you know, the FFE, the fire for effect. And then, you know, the artillery would come in. And, you know, so it was this very 
cinematic kind of experience in my mind, in my mind's eye, watching this kind of unfold. But at the same time, it was, you know, I spent a lot of time flipping through rule books, trying to see how I was supposed to do the things that I thought I could do or that I wanted to do. And, you know, to the game's credit, you know, the, it, everything that I imagined that you would want to do or could do in that situation was covered in there. But it was sometimes difficult to find it and then try to decipher it, you know, as, as a young gamer. Because um, that was really some of my first experience in gaming other than Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, that I, I kind of started with role-playing games, went into war games for a while, and then discovered Euro games as an adult, um, you know, much later in life after I had my kids. So, um, you know, I, I really had these fond memories of Squad Leader, but I have to admit that I, I left it. I left it probably, you know, in the 80s and didn't really return to it. So the next time I kind of became aware of this was, you know, hearing about ASL on the Board Game Geek forums and seeing that pop up and then going to a wonderful little convention in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the World Board Gaming Championships, uh, the WBC. And, you know, there's ASL stuff all over. And that's the first time I saw the binder chat. <laughs> <laughs> and when I saw the binder, I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is like a whole other level. And, I, you know, I remember kind of talking to the guy who was selling it and, and, and just kind of chatting with him and sharing some stories like I just did with you now. And, you know, I, but, but I was just totally, I was just like, okay, if, if the rules for this game come in a binder, I'm out of here because, you know, I'm like Mr. Eurogame now and I, I don't have the time to devote to these huge, long, complex, convoluted games, and, you know, I'm out of here. And then talking to people, um, you know, I kind of got some reverse information, um, you know, that, well, no, it doesn't have to be, you know, a seven-hour long game. It can be a short game. It can be a small game. It doesn't have to be this huge, epic kind of thing. And so that kind of piqued my interest again. And I actually, at one point, you know, thought about maybe trying to pick up a starter kit, but I hadn't pulled the trigger yet. So, I, you know, I got to admit that talking to you tonight, Chad, is part of my motives are selfish. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of looking to pick your brain and see what really is out there now for ASL and what are some of the things that, you know, maybe I could do or other people could do to look into possibly getting into this game in the future. Before we talk about the future, though, we've been talking about the past, and I'd like to try to kind of finish that up. So how did we get from Avalon Hill, which, as you said, was the original publisher of Squad Leader and, you know, Cross of Iron, Crescendo of Doom, and, and then the GI Anvil of Victory, which I completely forgot about. So thank you for reminding me of that. How do mm -hmm. we get from that to what we have now, which is, I think, a whole different publisher, isn't it? Yep. Uh, basically, Avalon Hill, you know, they came out in 1985. They they brought out Beyond, uh, I'm sorry, they, uh, not Beyond Valor. Yeah, Beyond Valor, the initial Germans and Russians, and they had the big old rule book. And as time went on, they were just cranking out additional modules, basically a module for each of the uh, nationalities that were involved. And also in the early 90s, they started also creating um, campaign games like Red Barricades and Conf Group Piper. Uh, and then they were they started doing the ASL Annual, uh, which is basically you know a magazine, uh, much like the the General was the you know the the General so to speak, uh, uh, Avalon Hill magazine. They had a an ASL specific magazine. And the other thing that cropped up around that time 
I'd say early 90s, is a lot of third-party um, products started coming into play. People said, hey, you know what? I can design scenarios. So they would, you know, they'd have fanzines and they would publish them or they would actually create their own sets of counters and their own boards and scenarios to go with it. Uh, so that was going along. And one of those, one of those groups of people uh, was actually a couple of the principals who uh, later would become um, part of Multiman Publishing. Um, so basically what happened is Avalon Hill went out of business late 90s, 98 or 99, I can't remember uh, right off the top of my head. And the, basically all their, all their games reverted over to Hasbro. And it was at that point that um, the, the two gentlemen that I mentioned uh, got together with uh, you know, a, a, a celebrity in, in gaming. There's, uh, there's very few you know, celebrities out there that, you can, uh, <laughs> that are famous across the world, or rather, you know, at least across America, that you right. can say, hey, they actually play board games. And we've got Rich Summer, and we've got Will Wheaton, that type of thing. But this was the first, uh, you know, per- first person I'd ever heard of who I knew outside of uh, gaming. That was um, the baseball pitcher, Kurt Schilling, who you know, went on to, he won awards and he won World Series, and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not a baseball guy, so I really don't, can't follow much of that. But with Kurt, they formed um, Multiman Publishing, and they worked out a deal with Hasbro to continue publishing um, Advanced Squad Leader. Uh, and in fact, so it was right around that time, I'd say 1999 or so. And then 2001, they actually put out a, a second edition of the ASL rulebook, uh, these guys had already been involved with um, answering questions you know, for Avalon Hill. They had been involved uh, with some of the production of Avalon Hill um, ASL, uh, you know, additional modules and the journals, et cetera, et cetera, or the annuals, and then they became journals later. So they were already part of the process anyway. So I think they had a good leg in to say, hey, we'd like to take over officially uh, putting out uh, ASL product. And that's what they did. And then you know, that's that's where it uh, found a new lease on life, so to speak. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, one of the things I want to touch on, you know, other than, you know, to tell you, since you're not a baseball guy, uh, Kurt Schilling, great pitcher for the Phillies, uh, loved Kurt Schilling. Uh, not so much when he went to Boston, but, uh, you know, that's where, of course, he won his World Series. But uh, always loved Kurt Schilling and uh, was very surprised, you know, actually, uh, when I saw his name associated with uh, Multiman Publishing the first time I saw it, I said, wait a minute, is that is that Kurt Schilling, like the, the pitcher Kurt Schilling? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, and I'm like, oh, cool, you know. Former Phillies pitcher, uh, you know, is is a war gamer. I kind of thought that was kind of cool, and so uh, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I I was kind of interested in that. That caught my attention. But um, you know, getting away from baseball and back to ASL now. Um, you know, the, the thing that I kind of find interesting about what you said is that, you know, apparently there was a lot of fan-driven content. So there was already a very strong community for Squad Leader even before it came Squad Leader. Am I understanding you correctly? Like there was already people who were putting out all sorts of their own sorts of expansions and modules, and you said even making their own counters and maps. So this was happening even before MMP took over, yes? Yeah, at least in the 90s. Um Actually, I, I believe that there was a, a, a fan magazine, so to speak, uh, called On All Fronts that started in the late 80s, uh, or maybe it was the mid 80s. They were they were publishing, you know, squad leader scenarios, and then they started also publishing advanced squad leader scenarios. So um, that was so there was that whole phenomenon that was going on behind the scenes. There's ASL ends up being a it's a sandbox in the sense of you have geomorphic boards and 
you can basically go, hey, I can let me you know get some nice source material about a given battle, and I'll design my own scenario, and I'll then play test it and balance it, and then they would go ahead and publish it. There were some squabbles in the '90s over. Um, you know whether or not uh, these third-party products could actually use the uh, the art from ASL, and that right. ended up being basically no, you can't use the art from ASL. You can put, uh, you know, they could put the numbers down to indicate what the um, you know what the, what the squad type was or what the tank type was, etc. But they can't, they couldn't use the art, uh, etc. So they had to they had to do their own thing, at, you know, at some point. But um, yeah, uh, I don't know that it went back, you know, too far into the squad leader. Era, but certainly with ASL, there's a whole huge community uh, that's been uh, just you know there's there's clubs all over the world for ASL, right. and a lot of those clubs will then also publish uh, publish scenarios or pu- publish little mini gameettes or whatever they may be, uh, and there's tournaments all over the world. There's you know there's certainly quite a few in uh, America, but there's a lot uh, overseas, Europe and uh, Australia, etc. So. It's a there's a whole worldwide community for the game. So you know the the next question then logically that I I kind of feel I need to ask you, Chad, is why, you know what what is it about ASL which is you know I, I think uh, well instead of me telling you and telling you what I think from my vague memories on a scale of one to ten, what would you rate ASL uh, complexity wise, and then to what do you attribute the sort of fan base and the longevity that this game has achieved even given the fact that you know it's a very complex it seems to me system uh if for no other reason than you have all the rules in a binder um not just mm-hmm. a, a single rule book and you know so you know this this would not seem to naturally be something you know this would seem to be a very small niche kind of a uh, a game that only a few people would really kind of be interested in yet you know you're describing this huge community of people all over the world who enjoy this game and and you know based on what i've read you're right i mean i know you're right so i'm just trying to figure out how is that? Why is that? What would you say, uh, you know, about the complexity of the game, number one, real quick, and then number two, to what do you attribute this uh, dedication and devotion uh, by the fans of Advanced Squad Leader? Well, complexity of the game, if you took it all, if you said, hey, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to grok the entire game and be able to do anything and play any kind of scenario, then it's it's definitely a 10. It can't be, it can't be anything less than a 10. But I don't think, from my experience, I don't think most players approach it that way. I think um, the way that it's set up is you can learn the rules that apply for the scenario that you're going to play. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's a there's certainly a full full you know binder, uh, but you have to note that I don't know at least 100 pages of that binder are just the vehicle notes and the gun notes that give right. you historical background, and then they give you do they do give you some information. That you sometimes need to look up to see, okay, for the wackier um, type of uh, weapons and stuff, or you know, if you have a early war tank that's got three turrets on it, and you have to figure out what the facing of those turrets are going to be, you're going to need to look in the vehicle notes. But <laughs> aside from that, you know, there are pieces of that rule book that you're rarely going to use, uh, such as the vehicle notes. There's pieces of that rule book that are very scenario specific. There's a chapter on desert. There's a chapter on um, the Pacific theater, playing in the jungle or doing beach landings. Um, there is a, a chapter that's basically 
not the optional rules, but the other rules like weather or parachute drops or uh, there, you know, caves, etc. I mean, there is there's a lot of detail there that you never have to touch. Uh, I, I've never played anything that has to do with beach landings or caves. I really have no desire to because it just seems like it'll make for a nice or make for a longer game. That's not really why I play. I play the game for the the three to four hour small scenario or tournament size scenario where I can sit down in an evening and play and hopefully set the game up ahead of time where I know, okay, I got to go look at uh, demo charges again. I have to just reread the rule on that because I forget how they work and this particular scenario has demo charges. Otherwise, I don't retain demo charges in my head. Right. Um, I retain the the basics about moving and firing and routing and breaking and uh, uh close combat and moving tanks around versus moving infantry around and things like that. All Line the, sight, all the all core that kind concepts. Of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the core concept concepts. I think that if you take that, uh, I think the complexity is probably more like an eight. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, I mean, especially if, if you also compare this, it, it, when you, when you talked about, you know, why do you play? Um, I think a lot of people get a, a lot of different, um, We'll have a lot of different answers for that. I'm somebody, I play for the replay value of playing something that I can finish in an evening. If I like the scenario, maybe I'll play it again. Otherwise, there are thousands of scenarios to choose from. So I'll go find another new scenario or a scenario that I want to revisit and play that. And the replay, you know, if you play the same scenario again, it's going to be different every time just based on the way that the game is set up um, and just the options that you have and the die rolls that uh, are out there. Uh I think for other players, they like to sit down with some of the campaign games where they may sit down and play play it with four players, play the you know big Red Barricades game in Stalingrad that's going to take them uh, a dozen Saturdays to finish. Right. And when you get into that, you ramp up some of the complexity because there's specific rules that are added onto that, and that's fine. A lot of people do that as well. So the, the, the key, I think, I think what's, what people get attracted to is that it's such a, a big sandbox. There's such a variety uh, and a, such a huge replay potential in this game that that's what drives a lot of people uh, to play it. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then, you know, the, the, the binder isn't something necessarily to fear any more than you would fear an encyclopedia. You know, the, the binder is a reference source. It's It's there for when you need to find something specific to a specific situation or a specific, as you said, terrain or a specific weapon. But it's not like you have to know that whole binder in order to play ASL. So I've got that right, yes? Yep, you've definitely got that right. Okay. And then the the second thing that, that you mentioned that I kind of found interesting, I want to pick out a little bit, is, you know, you said that it's different things to different people. You know, you, you're, you're more of a person who likes to play, you know, a smaller scenario or, you know, a firefight or, or you know, a situation and that, you know, you enjoy the replayability. Because, you know, not only can you play that same scenario multiple times and it'll turn out differently uh, depending on the decisions that the players make and the die rolls that occur, but that, you know, there's, if you ever get tired of that, there's, there's a seemingly infinite amount of other um, scenarios that you can use and go to. I yep. think replayability uh, is, is key to a lot of the games that I've kind of discussed with people on, on the long view, whether it's, 
you know, something like Kingdom Builder, which I talked with uh, uh, Martin Griffiths about, you know, where he kind of feels that the modular nature of the board and, and how everything unfolds and, and what the goals are, you know, makes it almost new every time. Um, you know, but also for this game, for a war game, you're, you're, you're talking about the same kind of things. You're saying there's this sort of infinite variety that's there. Uh, you've used the, uh, the term sandbox twice and, you know, that it's something that, you know, you can kind of take in almost any direction that you want. Um, so it's not as static as a traditional kind of war game that maybe I had experienced. You know, like when I play Washington's War, I like Washington's War, um, and it, it does play out differently each time that you play it, but, you know, the, you're still talking about the same operational level, the same map, the same kind of key points, the same sort of ideas that you're probably going to be circulating through, um, you know, a, a, as you kind of play that with somebody. And, you know, you're describing this as being something that could be, you know, uh, island hopping in the Pacific, um, you know, a beach landing in North Africa, uh, you know, uh, or, or anything, you know. Um, so I, I think that that's definitely something that's very intriguing. Um, and I also like the fact that you're saying that, you know, you don't have to sort of understand everything that's in the sandbox in order to play in it, which is kind of a neat thing as well. My question to you now, though, would be, for yourself and maybe for other people that you've talked to, I remember Squad Leader being pretty historically, and you mentioned it when you were talking about the vehicles in the rule book. I remember it being pretty historically um, researched. And you also mentioned, you know, that fans will research a particular firefighter battle or, or, or situation and then, you know, try to recreate it for the game. How much history is in ASL? Uh, you know, how how close is it to history based on what you know? Um, and, and is this something that maybe is, is a draw for people? What, what would you say to that? I think there's a lot of history in, in it. Um, I actually, as a little kind of pastime, I mean, if I buy like a, a new ASL journal, which is uh, their little magazine, or it's a very nice magazine that has new scenarios. I like to just look at the scenarios, read the historical. Um, there's usually, you know, a paragraph that says, you know, what the battle was, and then a paragraph of what the aftermath was. You get an idea just from that what this is about. It's not just, oh, there's these counters and this counter and on this board. You get an idea what you're fighting for or what, what was being fought over. Right. Uh, and and then you can see basically how the scenario designer went about uh, doing uh, you know uh, accomplishing that goal because it's a it's not an open ended game where you just play until you kill the other guy it's a game uh, like a lot of scenario based games where you have X number of turns and you have to do you know you have to exit certain number of units off you have to take this bridge you have to uh, clear out these buildings whatever it might be. Um, so you get a you can get an asymmetrical type of arrangement where you have great big attacking force. If they had all the time in the world, they're just going to decimate the defenders. But the defenders just have to hold them off for six turns. If they can hold them off and keep one guy in that last building for six turns, they actually win the scenario. That adds tension. That adds a lot of decision making. That it can add uh, replay value, and you get a you get that cinematic. Um, firefight or rather you get that feeling that historical feeling of okay they were kind of backs up against the wall having to hold that last building and keep the uh, keep the other guys off the bridge whatever it might be so back to the question i think uh, from a historical perspective that is a big draw for the game certainly there are uh, like with any game there uh, any of these board games that we play the, you know if you're playing a historical board game you're going to be able to punch some holes in it because you have to make it into a game you have to make it into something you can put on the uh, into uh, onto a onto a map and you can have counters that represent. So there's going to be some odds and ends that 
people are going to scoff at. But if you want detail, if you want historical accuracy, I think this is the game. If you want, if you're going after a tactical World War II game, this is the one to go for. You you know you get that dripping with historical theme, and you get the um, uh, you get that wonderful replay and that wonderful experience with the game in in rather in exchange for that hefty rule book where yeah you don't have to retain everything in your head but when a situation comes up you're likely to crack open the rule book and go oh, okay this is how this works or this is how we handle that but in general i think it just does a really excellent job with the uh, with the history so you know basically you know what you're saying is that the reason why the game has been around so long um is because of its attention to detail because it is open for new expansions and scenarios all the time. Uh, you know, all that you have to do is just continue to look through history to find more uh, situations that you can try to model um, using this system. And, it, you know, the replayability and, you know, you, you've mentioned this cinematic idea. And, I, I you know, I, I think I mentioned that too, this idea of seeing this, this movie play out in my head as I was playing Squad Leader. You know, that, that, that these are the reasons not only why the game is popular, but, uh, you know, also, would you say that this is why you should play Advanced Squad Leader? Is, is, this, is this what this game brings to you? Because, I mean, everybody plays games for different reasons. And, I mean, we're, we're not going to sit here and list them all. That would be boring. I mean, some people play for the social aspects. Some people play for competition. And some people, you know, play for, you know, kind of the, the exploration of the theme or the topic. And it seems like ASL really would appeal to people who are very interested in the theme and the history and the time period uh, of this game more than necessarily um, being interested in, well, you know, uh, I, I want to play this because I want to be the allies and, you know, we're going to, we're going to take out all the, you know, all the, the Nazi Germans or, you know, uh, we're going to be the, the, the Germans and we're going to try and, you know, overrun Stalingrad. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we're going to do it this time. It, it seems like people, um, from what you're describing and from what I've seen of people playing it, they don't really kind of get emotionally like attached. Like you said, it's not a dudes on a map game. Like you're, the, the goal is not just to wipe out the other guy and say, I win. You know, the, the goal is to kind of recreate a situation, a moment in time, and then see what would have happened or what could have happened had you been there or maybe been in charge. Would, would, would you say that that's, that that's true? Yeah, I mean, that last statement, I think, can kind of apply to all war games. But I think there's something, I think I think why this game really uh, caught the attention of so many people, even back in 1977 when it came out, it wasn't an easy game. Squad Leader was not an easy game uh, in comparison to a lot of the games at the time. Yet, again, four printings of the game, it caught on like wildfire and uh, attracted a lot of attention. I think it's because, well, first off, I think, if you're somebody like me who uh, who enjoys reading about World War II, or maybe in the very least enjoys watching movies or television shows about World War II stuff, you the things you're seeing on the screen, as far as like the cinematic approach, I think it comes out in this game because you're moving around an individual tank. You're moving. You've got that individual hero counter, or that individual leader, or that that individual squad. You know what that that represents. It's not the same as 
the abstraction that as you as you pull the microscope back uh, or the telescope back and you have a a bigger and bigger view of the battlefield until the point where you're looking at the continent and you're you know, you're the ones you're the axis powers and the other guys the allied powers and you're once you get to that you, you lose a lot of that uh, a lot of the cinema uh, that you can get when you play something that's at a tactical level you get this tactical level game you lit- there are literally scenarios that are right out of Band of Brothers, for example. There are literally uh, scenarios that um, uh, resemble what you see in Saving Private Ryan or in the Pacific series on um, HBO. Or, uh, I mean, there's scenario. There was a little scenario pack on um, Medal of Honor uh, winners. So there was a few Audie Murphy scenarios. Right. If you've ever seen the Audie Murphy movie, you know that type of thing. So you can actually drill down to that level and kind of see this type of thing recreated. Uh, and you get to the other part that's cinematic about it is what happens to your guys on the, on the table can be very cinematic, cinematic. You can be in rough shape and all of a sudden uh, find that your guys go berserk and they go charging up to that last building and they survive the fire and they enter the building in close combat. And they take the building and you win on the last turn and you're like, wow, look at that. Look at what just happened. That type of thing. Things you're not expecting that that are out of your control that you know just change the way things uh, play out. I think that also speaks to players once they once they uh, understood that oh that's what can happen in this. Right. So it's not as analytical then uh, necessarily you think as I'm making it out to be. It's it's not uh, curmudgeonly people you know sitting around with pipes and harumphing over you know this map. It's 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 more it's more immediate. It's more visceral. And and you're saying that there's actually elements built into the game that make it slightly unpredictable as well. Yeah, I mean there's you're certainly looking top top down at all your guys and you're able to move them. That's that's where some people have said ah oh, well you know historically you don't have that kind of command and control. Well, at the same time, they throw things in like, you know, you get shot at, your guy may break, and if he breaks, he's going to run away. He's no longer an effective uh, fighting uh, unit. He's not shooting anything. He's just waiting to get uh, to be, you know, scared to go further away or to be captured if the enemy moves next to him, that type of thing. So you got to get a leader over there and hope to rally him back up. Um, the There's, there's a concealment and fog of war in this game where you put concealment counters on most scenarios start like a defender's on the board and the attacker's coming in uh, from off the board. All the defenders in that situation um, ha- get to be concealed. They put a conceal. So you know, by looking at the scenario, you know exactly what I have available to me, but you don't know where I've put stuff. You don't know where that heavy machine gun is. Things like guns uh, usually set up hidden initial placement. So I've written down where those guns are. Right. Not only the hex that they're in, but also the way they're facing, because the facing has to do with where they can shoot without having to turn the gun and uh, receive modifiers when they take the shot. So all of a sudden, there's a little there's a little guessing game. Where did he put that gun? Is he trying, you know, is he putting it in the obvious spot right in that building I have to take, or is he putting it over here on the flank, trying to hope I, I bring my uh, my tanks up and uh, and expose their their rear to some shots from this anti tank gun. Um, so you add that, plus then you add the whole, uh, what they call the heat of battle, where the example I gave earlier, where, uh, you know, one bad die roll and your guys suddenly go berserk and go charging the enemy rather than, you know, do the smart thing of huddling down in that building or something to that effect. Uh, those type of things can happen. Your guys can just surrender. Your guys can, um, can just 
get a little, they can become fanatics where they get a little tougher there. The morale goes up, their attacks go up, etc. So there's, those are the things that, that enter into the game that you aren't planning for, that aren't the same as playing a war game where you're like, well, I can get four to one odds here and I can get two to one odds over here. That's more, I guess, of the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with those games. I like those games as well, but that's uh, something very different than that feeling of, okay, uh, you almost, you almost feel this game, ASL almost gets you to feel like, okay, I only have two turns left. I actually have to hurry. You feel yourself hurrying right. uh, to get the job done. You have to do in two more turns, that type of thing. And it also sounds like, you know, you get that connection where it's like, you know, Bob just broke, you know, it's like you, you can almost, you know, you, it's so specific that, you know, like you said, there's individual leaders, there's small squads. And so, you know, from my memory, they do kind of take on a little bit of a life of their own. And I think that's kind of, you know, you, you almost do get to know them. You know, yeah. Um, and and so there there's an interesting kind of uh, connection that's made with the game. Um, one other question that I want to ask you about, um, just out of curiosity, is okay. So ASL, great system, great sandbox, um, has been designed uh, with a rule set that is going to allow you to, in game terms, try to simulate a vast multitude of weaponry equipment um, units uh, different abilities terrains weather conditions everything that you can possibly imagine why no asl for world war one why no asl for vietnam why no asl for any you know any other conflict you know is is has that ever been kind of discussed kicked around i mean maybe this is old ground maybe someone's already answered this but as i was thinking about uh, recording with you tonight you know i've been much more fascinated recently with world war 1 um and, and so i've done more reading recently on world war 1 and and uh, you know read some books and a, a friend of mine um who i've done some podcasts with uh, uh, justin nordstrom he's got a lot of passion for world World War One, and I was kind of like wondering, like, I wonder why no one has adapted, or maybe someone has. What, what can you tell me about that, Chad? Anything? Well, World War One, I, I believe there was one scenario that uh, Multiman has published, not in the recent past, um, that it was on World War One, and some people scoffed at that, said it's just not the right system for it. But uh, they did have something. I, I just don't, I don't have much information beyond that. I think in general that World War One is such a different. Uh, such a different animal that, I mean, for for one thing, you would need totally different units, you know, as far mm -hmm. as their their morale, their range, their firepower, if you tried to use it. So basically, it's an endeavor that somebody would have to create. It's not something you can just say, oh, let me pluck a few ASL counters here and put it on a board and simulate a battle in World War One. Uh, I'm actually reading a book on World War One right now. So the other part of it is there's not a lot of tactical battle in there. There's a lot of uh, charge, uh, charge the enemy uh, trench line and right. get killed on the way and maybe force <laughs> right. them to run away. And there's certainly some close combat, but there's not the maneuver um, that you see that you saw in World War Two, and uh, there really wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of difference in terrain. There wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, difference in uh, things like you know, having parachutes, having caves, having uh, uh, a night battle having there's certainly cavalry but not not in the same respect and tanks were just not as prevalent either nor nor were nor did you have i mean in asl you can have uh, you can have aircraft come in and with fighter bombers or uh, strafing with machine guns and attacking your positions 
Uh, World War One just, I wouldn't say, would make the, the greatest choice. Maybe it'll happen someday. There are certainly a lot of scenarios that, that are pre-World War Two, as in there are scenarios on the Spanish um, Civil War. There's uh, some scenarios on the, the Chinese and the Japanese fighting just before World like 1936 or so. I forget the uh, exact time frame. But uh, in the late 30s, there's, there's scenarios there. And someone has been working for a while on a Korea War, a Korean okay. War, rather, um, module that uh, eventually when they finish it up, they'll submit it to MMP and hopefully uh, Multiman Publishing, that is. And uh, I assume that that'll see the uh, the light of day at some point. Going forward to that, though, when you get to Vietnam, you're talking, again, totally different weapons, um, very different um, fighting tactics, etc. from what little I know of Vietnam, which is not much at all. Uh, it's, I mean, it's sort of like, I guess the answer would be somebody could do it, but they'd have to you know, they'd have to roll up their sleeves and actually make it happen. It wouldn't be a quick, easy port. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there have been other systems, at least for Vietnam, there are other other game companies that put out their own different systems. Uh, Lock and Load comes to mind um, for having a, a Vietnam squad-based game. Uh, you know, but that's certainly not to the complexity level of ASL. I, I think I think it's re- it's both just that there have to, there would have to be changes made uh, in order to fit ASL into one of those other wars, as well as um, you'd have to make sure that the source material has the type of you know uh, scenarios that would actually work. That you know, again, if somebody was was to look at uh, World War One with you know uh, with, a, with a lens and say, okay, let's see, can we get a you know is this does it have the same kind of untapped potential that uh, World War Two has? And I think you'd probably find that it doesn't. That again, it's mostly trench warfare or it's you know close combat, and there's not the same type of move through. Take this village with uh, you know, take your 150 men and go into this village and take out those the 40 defenders that are there. I don't get the impression from what I've read about World War One that you get that situation happening very often. So the static nature of World War One, as you said, being mostly about trench warfare being fought, you know, back and forth, you know, take that trench from the enemy, the enemy then mounts a counterattack and takes the trench back from you and you fall back to your original trench. That's not something that's going to translate well uh, into ASL as far as that squad level detail. And I think I can completely see your point there. Um, you know, I, I, I would imagine the fit might be better for something like Korea or Vietnam. So I guess it doesn't surprise me that you're saying someone's already working on Korea, um, you know, and, and, and possibly, you know, in the future, someone, you know, might try and, and see if there's a fit there for Vietnam. I don't want to get too sidetracked on that. I, I was just kind of curious, uh, you know, if there was someone working on it or, and what your reactions would be. And, uh, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, this system really is designed for this conflict, you know, that, that this conflict was uh, unique. Um, and, and I think every conflict is unique in its own way. Um, you know, whether it's uh, you know the the terrain, whether it's the tactics, whether it's the people who are involved. Um, you know, what's going on sort of geopolitically at the time. I think every conflict is unique, and maybe you know uh, you know you've hit the nail on the head right there. Uh, you know that this conflict, is, you know, or this game really is best at modeling this particular conflict, this moment in time, uh, for you know this stretch of time, and. 
and uh, yeah, so I, I think you know that that certainly all makes good sense to me. Um, so let let's shift gears a little bit. We've we've talked about the complexity level of the game as being something that you can uh, kind of start small, uh, ratchet your way up. Um, we've talked about the variety in the game and 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 the sandbox nature of it. Um, we've talked about the sort of intimacy of this game compared to an operational level game. Um, so. If all of this sounds good to you uh, as a listener uh, to you know the show, hopefully, um, as it sounds good to me, if you were thinking about dipping your toe into the ASL waters, uh, what would be your recommendations, Chad, for for someone who's thinking about maybe giving this a shot, um, you know, and and trying it out? What would you recommend? Well, uh, I'm I'm partial to. Uh to just going or actually i would say my first suggestion is find a friend find somebody who's who's played the game and you can sit down with i mean it's it's sort of like um uh you, know, you talk about a lot of games out there that instead of just rushing out and buy 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 i heard something good about this let me buy it a little try before you buy might be good just so that you don't uh, buy the rule book and crack it open and go Oh my God! What did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I still think if you are a war gamer and you've gotten, you know, past uh, things like, uh, you know, Memoir 44, etc. You know, if you've played, you've mentioned Washington's War. If you've played uh, any of the more complex games, um, uh, you know, at least at least of medium weight, you can you can grok uh, ASL eventually. But it's it certainly behooves you to have somebody in the area who you could uh, you could play with and you could learn the, tip, the tricks and, and tips about it uh, and just get the general idea because um, this is a game that when I got into ASL um, I didn't I wasn't playing it correctly and then uh, put an ad up in a uh, at a local game store and uh, the guy answered and said hey you know I, I said hey I'd like to play these few games and he said I'd be up for playing ASL and we, we learned it together we made mistakes together we thought we had it down we started making friends who also play the game and we re- realized oh wow we've been doing this wrong but well that's very we comforting to hear Chad because yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know. that was my experience you know and and, and wargaming I got to tell you I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt but you know I just want to jump in here because this to me yeah. is one of the greatest barriers to people new people getting into the wargaming hobby i don't know what it is and maybe it's just me but i don't think it is there's an almost sort of like uh, you know I, I i'm 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 terrified that i'm gonna make some horrible mistake or that i'm gonna learn this game and have missed something incredibly important or essential and then I'm going to go and try to play somebody or play with somebody at the WBC, and they're going to look at me like I'm an idiot. And you know, <laughs> you 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 don't get that with Pillars of the Earth. You know, you're not no, you're no. not going to get that with oh, you know, we're going to sit and play a choir. You know, I mean, the, the, these are these are uh, you know, and I'm not I'm not trying to denigrate a choir or Pillars or you know any other game that 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 I love. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter is, is that you're talking about an investment of time of an hour to maybe three hours for most Euro games and you're talking about an 8 to 16 page rule book with tons of illustrations and lots of pretty pictures and colors and woo you know and and you know arrows pointing at things and telling you look here you know whereas when you get into war gamings it, it seems like it's just so much more dense you know like the, the, the rule sets are dense and it, it can be a little bit intimidating 
Um, and, you know, I talked about that intimidation factor in an earlier episode, actually about Magic the Gathering, you know, for, for kind of the same sort of reasons. Like there's, there's people who are just hyper competitive about how they play. And, you know, that that can be sometimes a little bit intimidating when you're looking to get into it. Um, I don't find war gamers to be that way necessarily. I, I don't find that they're, you know, scoffing at people who make mistakes. But there's still such a huge amount that you kind of need to be able to kind of understand before you even attempt to play that I always kind of feel like, okay, I'm going to completely screw this up and I don't want to waste somebody else's time because when you're playing a war game, you're generally playing something that's that's longer and, you know, you, you think you've planned out this beautiful move, this, this beautiful surprise for your opponent and you're like, ha ha, and then they go, yeah, well, you know, you can't do that and you're like what what now you know and then you've tipped your hand and it's like oh now he knows what i was thinking about oh my god i can't believe i screwed this up so you know it, it is nice to hear that you know you say that you messed up rules when you learned asl too because oh, yeah. maybe that means that you know it's not that big of a deal um you know what what would you say to you know that to to, to new players would you tell them not to worry about that i mean because you know you mention oh find a friend and uh, I think that's great advice. Don't get me wrong, but that's a perfect world. I, I mean, you know, there, there's not, it, it, you know, Joel, uh, Eddie, and I were talking about this in another episode where he was saying, you know, it's always better to learn a game from somebody who knows it. It's always better yeah. to have a friend, to have a oh, guide. Yeah. And even if that guide is wrong and they mess something up, it's okay because you have this guide. You have this person to help ease you into whatever that new game or situation might be. But, you know, I, I find that that's more difficult to come by the more um, specific you get about the kind of game that you want. You know, like there are very few people who will play Mage Knight with me. It's just way more than most of my Eurogame friends want to do. And so I'm not going to find a friend who's going to play that with me. You know, Jesse Dean down in Florida will be happy to kick my butt at Mage Knight any time that I wanted to play it with him. But, you know, there's just not that many people. And I, and I would imagine it's the same problem for most people with war games. Um, so given all of that, um, now that I've interrupted you, I'm going to let you go back to your point. I'm going to apologize for interrupting you. And, and tell me, you know, finish out your thoughts there. Like, you know, what do you think is the best way to get into this? And, and what mindset should you have? I guess that's kind of where I've been going with this. What mindset should you have when you're trying to get into ASL? Well, a couple comments on what you had to say. One would be, I think Wargaming is such a, a niche within a niche that I can't imagine any Wargamer going, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You did this wrong. And then just kind of walk away. I think uh, unless uh, it's maybe some exceptions of some people's personalities, um, I think people, you know, a war gamer is just glad. Oh, you're interested in this game? Great. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you know what? You're doing that wrong. Yeah, well, you know, we can reset if you want, but otherwise I'm going to crush you here, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> you'll learn from your mistakes. You'll go back. You'll read, whatever. You know, um, I, I don't think uh, – I, I think the only times that that, that that isn't true, one would be if you go to the WBC and you enter in a war game tournament or any, any tournament that actually says you must know the game, and you come in not knowing anything and you waste people's time, uh, you know, or you play horribly slow or something, you might, you know, not make a friend in that, in that case. Um, and the only other time I've actually experienced this where I've taught a game to, you know, to another, I've taught a war game to another guy 
And then I see him, uh, and he owns the game, and he's, oh, yeah, I think this is great. And, and uh, you know, I'm teaching him, and he's, he's, I think he's understanding and stuff. And then uh, two weeks later, we, we sit down, and we, we decide to play it again. And I realize he's absorbed nothing of what I taught him, and apparently he hasn't even read the rules, and we're back at square one. That that would be the only other time I could think of where, you know, if, if the person's not going to actually make the effort to retain or make, make the effort to go and read and, and uh and get something out of the game. I don't want to sit and teach the same game every every time I sit down with the same player. But that's that's a little you know that's that's off on the side for for ASL. Um, yeah, I say I say find a friend. But uh, certainly if you're if you're somebody who has no problem cracking up a 24 48 page war game rule book <laughs> where you know you pick up the the, the rules for Paths of Glory. Uh, to my knowledge, I haven't read the rules. I own the game, but uh, you know something like that. You need to read the entire rulebook, and need to you need to uh, to grok the entire rulebook to play the game. Unlike ASL, where oh okay, I can skip this whole section. I don't have to read any of the terrain that doesn't apply to this scenario. I don't have to read any of this night stuff or any of that stuff. I can just you know get down into the uh, the nitty gritty details. Um, I think it's it's a perfectly uh, learnable game, um, even if it's just you picking up the rulebook and uh, and starting from there. Is it very easy to teach? Uh, you know, if you've just read the rules and now you're going to teach somebody else, maybe not. Um, again, hopefully you can at least find somebody, you know, arrange at that at that convention that you're going to go to. Just say, hey, I've read the rules for ASL. Uh, I think I have a pretty good idea. Anybody out there want to play a game with me? So it's a find a friend, uh, you know, sort of indirectly, maybe somebody you don't know, but at least you'll get a chance to play and start learning the game and start learning, uh, you know, what you missed, so to speak. So that would be... I guess one way to, to say how to get into it. Um, more specifically, uh, as far as what's available, um, that can be kind of a challenge at times. Um, when Multiman Publishing uh, took, got the rights to the game, what they didn't get was you know any of what Avalon Hill had for you know what the counters look. I mean, basically, this you know they didn't they didn't get all the the uh, the printing information, all the you know whatever kind of files. And again, if a lot of this stuff is printed back in the uh, in the 80s and early 90s and stuff, uh, it's a totally different situation than from what we have today. So they didn't have you know oh here put this on a floppy diskette or put this on a on a CD rather all the counter information, all the scenario information, all the pages of the rule book. The reason why they came out with uh, a second edition rulebook is they basically had to recreate um, ASL. And as they started putting out uh, modules like Beyond Valor, um, which is the first kind of kickoff module, which has all the Germans and the Russians in it, they had to recreate it all. They had to you know, redraw the maps. They had to redraw the um, uh, or recreate the imagery, uh, the iconography, etc. You know, the little men, little tanks, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether they were photocopying and blowing it up or whatever else, but it takes a lot of work for them in general to do that. They can't just sort of like, oh yeah, we've got all the information right here from Avalon Hill, but boom, here you go, we've just reprinted this module. They basically have to start from scratch. So right now they're in the midst of working on the um, bringing the Japanese and the um, the U.S. Marines back with uh, a new module called Rising Sun which will take a couple of the old Pacific Theater modules from the uh, 90s and publish them together as one new big uh, module. Um, again, they're, they're kind of starting from scratch with all that, um, or at least they, they're not able to just make it, make it quick. So it's something that's been going on for a couple of years where they've been working on getting it all lined up, basically generating this whole, you know, this whole uh, expansion from, from scratch. So 
Long story there is um, it, it means that not everything is readily available in print. There's a lot of stuff out there that, um, you know, you can go on eBay, you can go on Constant World to the marketplace. There's people selling their ASL stuff all the time, so it's not like you can't find stuff. But if you really want the French module, Croix de Guerre, uh, that's, not, you know, that's not in print, and it's uh, something you have to go track down. As far as what is available... Uh, the rule book is currently out of stock with MMP, but I know that they're going to be reprinting it soon. But it, and it's also available out on out in uh, retailers and stuff. Um, they're they have a map bundle where they they have all the maps in a, a nice um, uh, unmounted form, but uh, still it's uh, you know it's a sturdy uh, sturdy cardboard type of thing that's uh, I think is even better because you put in little you put it in sleeves and stuff and protect the map etc. And they've they've redone all the the graphics for these maps and stuff so now they all line up nicely. The old mounted maps didn't necessarily always line up the, the best etc. Now the new maps are great. Beyond Valor again Russians and Germans is available for King and Country which is the British that's available. Like I say, right around the corner will be the, the Japanese and the U.S. Marines, and uh, sooner or later they'll be doing um, whatever Yanks, the, the U.S. Uh, Army uh, uh, module. That'll be coming out eventually. So the the ability to get back into it, um, to get back into ASL is there. It's just not necessarily all available at once. Then again, this is not a cheap thing to get into. If right. you wanted to have everything, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Uh, just getting the rule book and, and Beyond Valor alone, which are the two pieces you need to start, that's going to cost you, I think, close to $150. Wow. So, you know, it's... Um, now, is is that what you're referring to as... Is that what's referred to as the ASL starter kits, what you're talking about, this Beyond Valor, nope. or is that something different? I mean, because I've seen nope. these starter kits. What What's that all about? I was just talking straight ASL, which again is my preference. Um, I, I think that that's you know the, the better of the you know the best system. But let's say you're a little, you've got some trepidation. You're not sure. You don't really want to get into a, a game that has a binder, at least not yet. You want to make sure you have a, an idea what this game is like. That's where back in 2004, uh, MMP started coming out with starter kits. And so there's a starter kit one that's just infantry. So there's some boards in there, there's some counters in there, there's some scenarios, and then there's whatever, a 12-page rule book in there. And it's standalone. If you buy a starter kit number one, which unfortunately is currently out of print, but you know will be back because it's it, it keeps it keeps selling out. The, it's such a, a popular item. Um, with that one starter kit, you have everything you need to play every scenario that's in it, which is six or eight scenarios. Starter kit two... Uh, introduced guns and it took the whatever 12 page uh, rule book and added and I'm just making this up but added another four, four pages that had to do with guns right. so anti-tank guns artillery guns whatever uh, and it also has scenarios and it also has um, counters and again it's standalone starter kit three added tanks so now you have tanks and guns you've got the whole the whole kit and caboodle again standalone where they added onto the rule book and then the other product i mean there, there are some other products out there but the other product i'll note is um they had an expansion kit which um along with star kits one and two is also out of print at the moment but the, they had the asl starter expansion kit which was not in a box but it had the now latest and greatest rule book uh basically it had the rule book from star kit three but then tweaked some errata or whatever and just you know so it's the uh, again, it's another standalone product. A couple, a couple boards in there, uh, a sheet of counters, and you can play all the scenarios that are in it. So, you could start at any of those points. You could, um, you could pick up. You know, if all you found was starter kit number two, for example, you could play still AS. I'm sorry, infantry only scenarios 
with any of these four products if you wanted to. And you could then gradually add in guns, gradually add in tanks or whatever you'd like to do. So you don't so, necessarily have to go in the order one, two, three. Like you could go out and get Starter Kit 2 and play. You don't have to have one in order to play Starter Kit 2. Am I understanding that correctly? That's right. They're all standalone uh, items. Right now, Starter Kit 3 is available. You, know, you can go on MMP's uh, website and buy it right there. And you've got everything you need to play. Uh, infantry, gun, and tank-related scenarios that are right inside the box. And you've got all your counters. So there you're going to see some, a little bit of Americans, some Germans, some Russians, some British, whatever. Um, you know, so they'll have just enough, you know, enough counters to basically support whatever scenarios are within that pack. As opposed to something like Beyond Valor, you get all the Russians. You get every different type of squad, every different type of vehicle uh, for the Germans and the Russians, um, and a ton of scenarios and a ton of boards to go with it. That's on the ASL side. For the starter kit side, it's a couple boards, two or three boards, you know, six or eight uh, uh, scenarios, the, the latest and greatest rules up to that point, and you're, you're good to go. The big difference, you know, what, what's different, what, it make, what makes it a starter kit is that they've stripped away a whole bunch of rules. Now, I've already mentioned that basically, you know, this is um, uh, that ASL itself is something where you can just bite off the chunks that you want. You can just learn what you need for a scenario. You don't have to learn everything. Well, Starter Kit handles that for you. It removes all the all the stuff that you'd rarely see, all the strange type of terrain. It removes uh, night and weather and everything else. It also pulls a lot of the things um, that I've mentioned out. It pulls um, concealment uh, out of the game. Um, it pulls the heat of battle, you know, where your guys are going berserk, etc. Uh, that's no longer in the game. Mm. So it's it's stripping down to the core. You know, how do you how do you rally? How do you how do you fire? How do you move? How do you defensive fire when somebody else is moving? Uh, advancing fire. How do you do your routes? How do you do advances in close combat? Um, so it captures the the core of the game. Uh, the reason why I'm still more partial to ASL is I like I like having the fog of war with the um, uh, with the rate of fire uh, with the um, sorry with the concealments I like having the heat of battle because that that livens things up. Uh, there's there's other other items that have been pulled out for starter kit that I really enjoy having in the game because that's just what I'm used to after playing ASL for hundreds of games uh, over the years. Uh, but it's certainly you know it's it's a starter kit it's certainly a great way to get into it the rules are laid out nicely i have to applaud multi-man publishing um for the way they set it up because i think it's very accessible it's you know if you can pick up the uh the rules for washington's war and uh read that and play that that game you can certainly pick up the rules for one of the starter kits and have the same experience uh so it's a great way to to get into the game so you can ease your way into it is basically what you're saying. Um, okay, so let's say that you know uh, you you take a look at a starter kit and and you kind of get familiar with it and and you play. Um, but you know I, I know that there's a lot of war games out there. I know that there are some uh, websites that are out there where you can meet up with people and basically uh, play games online. Is ASL one of those? Are there online sort of sites where you can go and you can, you know, uh, play a game with somebody? Or is it so scenario specific that it's it's not something that has been, you know, ported to an online kind of a version? Uh, I'm drawing a complete blank here. I've actually done this with Washington's War and other games. There's a there's a way to kind of get it on your computer. I I I. I can't believe I've forgotten this, Chad. But do you know what I'm talking about? Is there, is there a way that you can play about. this online with um, uh, somebody? 
Yeah, uh, you're probably thinking of Vassal. Yeah, there you go. Thank or you. Poss- All right. Or possibly war game room <laughs> in the case of uh, of uh, Washington's war. Um, I may have the history wrong of this, but to my knowledge, uh, the Vassal started with ASL, and it was VASL. It was Virtual Advanced Squad Leader. Oh wow. Okay. So All right. you know that whole um, uh, I think it's Java based um, uh, system. Um, I think it's Java. I'm not sure now, uh, but you know, it, it started for ASL. So you can go on there, you can get the VASL um, you know, module, so to speak, uh, and download that and download all the maps and download all the counters. And that's a the whole Vassal system. There's also VASSAL, which is what you're thinking of, where there's hundreds of other war games and uh, miniatures games, and there's Euros on there, and that's something where you can play. And in general, in both cases, it, these are online resources or online game systems, so to speak, that don't enforce the rules, but they'll have, you know, screen, they'll, they'll capture the map, they'll capture the counters, they might let you press a button to roll dice, they may, you know, you press a button, you can see the, the combat charts, etc. Uh, and you can play either live with somebody, uh, you coordinate just getting on and uh, you bring it up live and you move your pieces around, or you can uh, play by mail where you do your move and save the file and send it, to, you know, send it via email. I've played Washington's War, for example, on regular Vassal on V-A-S-S-A-L. Um, I haven't played ASL on, um, on V-A-S-L because I think the game is best... Uh, best not mold over and you know and and wait for somebody to send something i think it's a game it's best face to face and get into the moment of it because there's a lot of especially during movement phase there's a lot of decision making somebody you basically move a squad into a building and you announce okay that's two that's how many movement points it costs and you wait for the other player to decide whether he's going to shoot at you or not and if he doesn't (laughs) then you can keep moving so I don't want to try to capture that with, you know, an online thing. Uh, I mean, I, I guess you could do it live. I just, I, I would rather be face to face. I like this game for the social aspect in general, uh, games rather, gaming for the social aspects in general. So, but that is a, a resource that's available out there. Um, I can say uh, there's there's other resources, and this applies to both ASL and to the starter kit. Uh, you go on board Game Geek to their respective pages. There are videos galore. Um, that uh, Joe Stedman, for example, who was a uh, one of the former hosts of uh, the Dice Tower, mm-hmm. um, back when Tom uh, Vassal was in uh, Korea when they were there together, uh, he's done a bunch of really nice videos that explain, in this case, both games, if I remember correctly. Uh, so there's there's training videos out there on okay, how does this work? How does routing work? How does this you know how does uh, fire work? How does uh, anything uh, any pieces of the puzzle that'll help you where you can actually see. Uh, the game that that's actually a resource that applies these days to almost anything. You want to just get an idea of how a game is is played. Uh, I I think uh, watching a video first, if it's well done, is a great thing to do just to give you an idea, and then you start reading the rule book. Uh, is is a great way to learn a game these days. Um, there are also uh, various sites on the uh, on the internet. There's a there's a site devoted to ASL called Game Squad, um, or at least I, I, I don't I don't frequent it, but uh, it, maybe it's not devoted to game squad or to ASL, but there's certainly a large uh, fan presence there talking about the game or talking about I assume squad leaders or ASL and uh, Star Kid as well. There's forums on Consum World that you can go. You can just pop on there and ask a question. You'll get pretty much a fairly immediate response to your rules questions if you go there. Multiman Publishing on their site they have um, FAQ and errata information. 
Uh, they also put that information in their in their journals and their you know their yearly magazine for ASL. Uh, and I, I should mention, since this is a podcast, and anybody listening to it must listen to podcasts. There's a podcast devoted to ASL called the Two Half Squads. A couple of guys in Chicago who uh, like to throw some humor into their uh, in, into their proceedings. Uh, they they will talk ASL. They they like spending episodes just talking about a chunk of the rules and sort of quizzing each other on the rules and um, and. Uh, just getting into the into the finer details there, but they'll also talk about the products that are out, and they'll have guests on and people from MMP, etc., and talk about what's going on in the hobby. So, and that's again a, a, a podcast that's devoted just to ASL. And there's a little bit of starter kit in there as well. Plus, um, they have some videos that they call Newbie Do, which are designed to just kind of teach somebody who's new at the game. Um, and uh, whether it's video, I think it's videos as well as podcasts where they. Uh, they approach that like they have a podcast and i'll tell you all right move the, you know set up the scenario with me and now move this to here and now i'm going to shoot at you there that type of thing so you can kind of follow along so that's another resource out there again it's a it's a big community it's this is a game that i mean you're familiar with um with gmt because of you know washington's war for example gmt right. does pre-orders whenever multi-man publishing puts an asl product up on pre-order it doesn't take long at all usually you know a day before it's it's met and fully surpassed its um, uh, its pre-order numbers because there's a big community out there that's anxious for new stuff and will buy it right up. It's just a matter of again getting those the new things made and that's why the third-party products are out there as well. That people are, you know, they see that MMP is putting out great stuff, but they they say, hey, well, they haven't done one on this topic. Let me make a scenario pack and and sell that. So there's tons of scenarios, tons of choices out there for. Uh, for both support as well as more things to buy. Right, right. Well, it sounds like, you know, there's just an infinite uh, variety. And, and, you know, you describe the community as, as you know, it seems like a, a fairly uh, close-knit community, um, you know, in that, uh, you know, this is something that people are passionate about. And I think you've done a, an excellent job of sort of explaining, you know, why the game has such attraction to so many players. And, you know, clearly it, it, it certainly has longevity. I mean, that speaks for itself. Um, and it's something that continues to grow. So, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to sort of, you know, outline all of those resources. You know, people who are familiar with ASL, this is all, you know, old hat but you know my hope is to kind of try to use this show as, as a forum to kind of you know maybe introduce some new people um, you know to the idea of perhaps trying to get into ASL and uh, you know I, I also appreciate the fact that you know you've done a really good job of, of taking some of that intimidation factor out by talking about how modular the system is and and you know how you can sort of strip it back to its basics and you don't have to um, necessarily grok everything at once just you know the, the, the pieces that you need uh you know to play what you're going to play so I, I really do appreciate that um I, i'm gonna uh, you know try and throw something out there for people who are familiar uh with asl and i'm gonna put you on the spot chad and i'm gonna ask you favorite scenario or favorite kind of of uh you know you describe these different sort of theaters of operations that are covered in different sort of uh, uh packages that have have come out what what's your favorite that you've played, what what one do you seem to be drawn back to? Well, I'll, uh, first I'll just give a little intro there that I I think of ASL as basically a game that has it's multiple games within a game. I mean, the replay value there is there obviously just with the scenarios. Each scenario is like a brand new game. 
Um, it's like if you get if you back in the day getting like strategy and tactics or whatever, or even even now just getting a magazine game where you get a game, you learn it, you play it, you enjoy it. Um, I think you can get that same feeling from every scenario out of ASL uh, in general. That you've that each one is its own little standalone game that's a lot of fun. They're, in this case, however, it's a series, so you can you can use your knowledge from one scenario to another to apply. But I think the other part of it being a game within a game or games rather within a game. Uh, what I mean by that is I, I enjoyed when, when at the height, when I was playing it, that we would basically say, Hey, you know what? Let's start playing some cavalry scenarios. So we would play, you know, three, four cavalry scenarios in a row. We'd read up on the cavalry cause it's not something you see in every scenario and just go at it and really get used to the, the tactics that are involved. And it's usually early war with cavalry, so you're getting different type of vehicles or you know, you're fighting with the poles, for example. Uh, and uh, it's just really, you know, it's an interesting new take on, on, uh, on playing the game that you don't get just from your general, you know, Russians fighting the Germans or Americans fighting the, uh, the Germans, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I say all that to to say that uh, my favorite, I, I, I really can't name a specific scenario, but um, I like the Pacific Theater. It added uh, a, a lot of cool things with uh, with fighting with the Japanese in the jungle and uh, Marines, etc. Uh, the Japanese are just very cool the way that they're handled. They don't they don't break. They just get you know they they flip up, they reduce basically. So they just sort of keep coming at you. And they usually have a lot of, uh, if it's the Americans or British who are attacking the Japanese, the Japanese are usually, for the most, you can have the entire map just be, start the game and all the Japanese are hidden on the board. You have no idea where any of them are. And that gets very cool. That, that when you're just moving your guys along the, uh, along a path in the jungle, wondering, waiting for the other player to pop out some squads and start, sh- start shooting at you. And you might actually have just moved into their, into their hex. You can actually move right through their hex. If you don't end on their hex, you're not going to reveal them. They're, they're, you know, hiding. That's just very cool. There's a lot of aspects of this, of the Pacific theater that uh, I enjoyed. It involves reading additional, I don't know, six pages of rules for how the Japanese are played and the various terrain that come with being in the jungle. But it's very, uh, very rewarding. Uh, I'm very much looking forward. Uh, I mentioned that uh, the Rising Sun module is coming out, uh, should be out this year. Um, that I'm looking forward to having that because basically it's bringing the Japanese back. And I hope that a lot of people who maybe didn't get a chance to play it in the ASL world will now have a chance to, uh, to experience it. You know, um, do you find too? Um, uh, thanks, and by the way, thanks for for committing to the Pacific. There, I thought you were about to give me the "I love all my children equally" speech. That's where I really thought you were going no. with it. I'm like, oh, he's not going to commit to anything. He's going to tell me they're all wonderful and talented in their own way. Um, <laughs> anyway, actually, I, even, I even have a. Uh, I, I I just thought of a scenario that's actually in the Pacific that I think I've played four or five times called Tatsugeki. Uh, Japanese uh, American scenario uh, written by uh, or designed rather by Brian Yaus, one of the principals over at um, at Multiman Publishing. That's a great little tournament. It's like half a board. Uh, you just jump right into it. You're fighting almost immediately, type of thing. And uh, that would be an example. There, there you go. Now I've picked my favorite scenario too. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, you know the, the the other the other question I had is you were talking about this. You know, you're talking about all right. Well, you have to read about another six pages worth of rules to kind of deal with how the Japanese fight. 
you know, to, to deal with uh, the, the special situations and, and the special rules that apply to them. You mentioned breaking and, and things of that nature, right? Yep. Do you find that certain players become more adept at playing a certain uh, side than others? Or uh, do, does no one ever, in your experience, kind of commit to, well, you know, I always play uh, the, the Brits, I always play the Japanese, I always, you know, because it sounds to me as though, you know, there's, there's some special rules, there's some specialization involved in, in the tactics and maybe the mindset of, of how you might want to approach playing that particular fighting force that uh, with time and with experience, you, I would assume, get better at it. So, uh, do you, do you find that people kind of naturally gravitate towards a particular fighting force, or uh, do you, are you always mixing it up because, again, of that sandbox nature? Uh, sandbox nature. Ah, I'm just going to try these guys out today. I mean, wh what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've played with quite a, quite a lot of people uh, over the years, and uh, it's it's a it's a big variety. I don't feel I don't recall ever playing against somebody who's like I only play the Germans, or you know I only play the Axis, or I don't you know I only play Pacific Theater, etc. You'll certainly get people to say I don't play Pacific Theater. I've never bought the module, and I, I'm just not interested in playing there. I like the Eastern Front, whatever. You, you get a lot of that. Um, so I, I don't think it's not the type of game that I've seen anybody really pigeonhole themselves in that respect. As far as what uh, you know, whether somebody's better at something, you certainly get people. Um, I've played against players. You know, certain people are really great on the attack, especially if they have a lot of things. You know, some people are wizards of. You know the combined arms. You give them ten tanks and twenty infantry uh, or twenty squads, rather. They can make it all work, and they can set up their attacks, and they can just make you cry. But you put them on defense on, in a defensive position, they may not be as savvy, and it's just either what uh, what they have gotten used to playing, or just you know, represents their style. I like to think that I mixed up a lot of uh, you know how I approach things. So you know. Uh, I'd have a forward defense on one game, and then the next next scenario, uh, I'm doing more of a rear defense, I'm, or I'm falling back type of thing. So I, I, I hope that my opponents weren't getting into situations where they could predict what I was going to do. Uh, and that that's a lot of fun, too. There's a little bit of a metagame there as well. But for the most part, I played against so many different players that I never really got used to. Any, it was never anything like, oh, I, I will always beat so and so if I'm the attack. That never right. happened. It was, you know, it's, and and the guys were always very interested in, oh, let's try this out, let's try that out, um, let's try this big monster scenario, or let's, hey, let's no, let's just play uh, some shorter scenarios, or let's go off and play one of these historical modules and play some scenarios from there. So everybody seemed to really enjoy exploring you know whatever whatever the new thing that just came out uh as well as exploring the various um uh cool theaters like pacific or or desert etc mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh, you know your your experience then is is really it is more about exploration um than anything else more about uh you know trying something new at least in you know it sounds as in your experience with the players you played with you know you don't have someone who's trying to perfect uh their strategy or tactics for one particular theater or one particular group uh everybody seems to be you know pretty uh open to trying new things and and you know it, i think that's kind of nice because it seems like it's a much more welcoming 
loving, flexible kind of a community than, you know, going up against that one guy who, you know, always plays this, uh, you know, particular, uh, you know, group or, or this particular fighting force or in this particular uh, theater and, and just crushes everybody. And, um, you know, again, you know, thinking about those barriers to entry, uh, it's nice to hear that, you know, people like just trying new things. And, and I kind of go back to your earlier comment about, hey, you know, let's let's just play a bunch of stuff with cavalry. You know, we haven't really done anything with cavalry. And so it sounds like there there's a lot of curiosity um, that drives, you know, your particular passion, at least, for exploring the, the space that this game offers, which seems to be uh, just this ridiculous amount of avenues that you can go down uh, to check things out, and you know, whatever strikes your fancy. Um, yeah, and I think uh, that there's a, a reflection that I can make with that, or rather... Uh, Amir, just just so you, just so you know, I don't just play ASL. In fact, I, I don't play much anymore, just because my opponents have moved away, etc. Um, but I think the same way where I talk about, you know, that there's these individual kind of like there's different, so many areas to explore within ASL. You can get into cavalry, Pacific, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It kind of that f uh, flows over to what I'm like as a war gamer and a gamer in general. For war games, I've gone out and I've tried just about all the different uh, types. I play I play card-driven games, I play block games, I play hex encounter games, I play area games, uh, I play some of the wackier ones, I play fantasy uh, war games as well. Um, and I enjoy exploring all those things. I, I, I enjoy seeing what's out there, you know, in the block war game or in the card-driven war game, etc. And I think that's the same type of approach I had with ASL. It's like, I want to see what it's like to play a scenario where it's all about holding this bridge as opposed to a scenario where it's all about evicting the other guy from this town or, again, getting into Pacific, etc. So that's just... I guess that maybe it's uh, reflective of my style or my personality, but I find that most war gamers are that way. At least the ones that I play war games with these days, they're always willing to try something new. Um, you know, to to get there's there's very little that they that would be uh, off base or you know like um, out of out of bounds for them. They're like, no, no, I don't want to play any any games of that style. No, we we try everything and we enjoy it. Right. Well, that sounds uh, that that sounds fantastic, and uh, you know, definitely uh, the, the the kind of attitude that's just wonderful to have in any gamer, whether you're a war gamer or you're a gamer or uh, you know whatever your particular passion happens to be. I think that that's uh, that that's wonderful. Um, and I also think it's interesting. You know, you talked about how there's not like you know one particular you know fighting force that someone wants to play, but that there's a style. You know, that there's you know some people just seem to naturally do better. Uh, on the offensive than they do on the defensive and vice versa. You know, I, I think, too, one of my favorite uh, war games came out, I guess it was last year, um, uh, Seki Gahara. And, uh -huh. I mean, I am terrible as the Ishida player. I cannot play that game as the Ishida player. I just can't do it. Um, I am so much better at playing, I, I think it's a Tokigawa player, um, you know, even though they're kind of, you know, outmanned, uh, you know, as far as being outnumbered, um, I, I'm so much better, I think, in open space and and being kind of flexible. And, and the Ashita player is kind of boxed in on this one sort of corner of the map, uh, you know, depending on how the Ashita player plays it. But, like, when I play it, I, I'm just terrible. I'm just, I'm no good at kind of playing defense. Like, I, I have to kind of move and attack and retreat and and kind of keep things very fluid and you know so when you were talking about that with ASL I mean that really struck home to me because you know I think about uh 
you know, that there are specific games where I really do feel that just I play a particular style, you know, that, that either as the attacker or the defender better. Uh, conversely, when I play games like Strike of the Eagle, I'm always much better as the poles, you know. I'm always much better trying to hold the line, you know. But that's a yeah. kind of a different sort of a feel in that game than there is in Sekigahara. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, it, it almost seems like the player... Um, finds their comfort zone or something that they feel competent or good at in each individual game. And perhaps with ASL, uh, even though I don't have experience with it, it sounds as though, you know, players can find their comfort zone in each individual uh, scenario, you know, that, that that's something that, you know, they kind of feel like, okay, this is, I'd really like to try this, you know, I, I think I could, you know, I, like you said, I, I want to just try and hold this bridge. I want to see how that works. I want to see if I can manage that, um, you know, and then another scenario, you know, you might really want to be the guy who's on the offensive, that's on the attack, that's trying to take the fight to uh, the enemy. So um, I like that you're talking, you know, about this kind of wide variety of objectives, and, and I really appreciate the fact that it is a game of objectives you know you mentioned that earlier when i was talking about it doesn't sound like the kind of game where you're just out there to try to dominate someone it's like and and my victory is by wiping all your guys out i mean it's not dudes on a map it's much more objective it's much more you know there's a specific goal that you're trying to reach like you said sometimes just moving units off the map you know moving them across the map and then off sometimes it's capturing a building or holding a bridge or whatever it happens to be so uh, that offers you know a lot of flexibility as well and um, just just a way to find something that would be interesting to you so I certainly do appreciate your sharing uh, you know your thoughts on that because it's it's really got me thinking about war games in general general and why maybe I like some war games and others don't resonate as well with me um, you know and I think it could have something to do with that kind of style you know when, when you were mentioning you know that that people don't necessarily play a particular force um, so often that you know you get to know them and then you can try to metagame them and predict you know like like the you know from uh, the movie Patton I think you know Rommel you magnificent bastard I read your book you know like you don't yeah. you don't have <laughs> that particular uh, you know thing happen because people are always trying new things but uh, you know I I could see. Um, you know, playing the game if you played with someone regularly enough to where you might kind of start to learn some of their tendencies. And that would add a whole nother layer uh, or level to it. Um, you know, that could be something interesting to explore as well. So, well, Chad, uh, you know, at this point, I, I want to thank you uh, very much for taking the time um, to talk to me about, uh, you know, ASL. Um, you kind of taken me back to uh, my, my earlier childhood. Well, not childhood, but, you know, Close enough to childhood. You've taken me back, Chad. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and, you know, brought up a lot of fond memories for me and sort of explained the evolution of, of, you know, how we got from squad leader to ASL. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share, uh, you know, the, all of the specific information about maybe how to get into it and things to look for. And, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, if there are others who are out there listening that have been thinking about maybe taking a look at this game, that maybe this will be, you know, the, the impetus to kind of get them to, to take that plunge. And, uh, you know, I look forward to maybe trying to get together with you someday and have you try to explain it to me and, uh, you know, maybe try one of those little starter scenarios if you're willing to pull yourself back to that uh, introductory level. And, uh, you know, it sounds like from what you're describing, you know, people are, are 
you know, good-natured and, and happy to uh, play. And, and that's just uh, really good to hear, you know, a very welcoming community. And I think that's something that people should know because I think a lot of people assume uh, that, you know, war gamers are much more serious and, you know, much more kind of curmudgeonly. And, and, you know, while I'm sure there are people like that out there, uh, I think you've done a good job of dispelling some of those myths and just saying, hey, you know, we're, we're interested in history. We're interested in, you know, uh, trying to get a feel for what it might have been like and trying to, you know, uh, see what could have happened or would have happened and you know we're here to have fun just the way any other gamer is there to have fun so i appreciate you sharing that so um chad thank you so much for uh joining me tonight on the show my pleasure and uh i, I would certainly sit down and you know you want to start with a starter kit uh scenario I, I would certainly sit down and teach you the teach you the game and in exchange uh, I, uh you can you can take me through a game of mage night at some point <laughs> There you go. That sounds I like it on a the shelf. Just haven't learned that it yet. That sounds so. like a deal to me. Now I can teach you Mage Knight, but apparently I'm not very good at it. Well, I that's thought good. It's I was good, good at teach it. somebody and let them beat the crap out of you, because exactly. then they'll come back for more. Yeah, I was talking with uh, Jesse Dean, who has been on this show before, and uh, yep. he has his uh, on Gamers Game blog on Board Game Geek there, and you know he and I had talked quite a bit, and we did a whole episode on Mage Knight, and you know I told him I said it was so funny because I was able to discuss the game so intelligently. And, you know, I knew the game and I was just like, oh, yeah, and then you can do this and this. And then he and I got together face to face and I just kind of understood just like how much better he was at that game than I was. Like he just <laughs> he knew the system so well inside and out. And he was so nice about it. You know, I'm sitting there trying to puzzle through it because, it, you know, at its heart, Mage Knight's kind of a puzzle game. And I'm trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. And then I go and make my play. And he's like, what, do, what would you mind? Would you mind? I can I can show you something, you know, just just as just as a thought, you know. He's just being so nice about it. He's like, you could do this, 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 and then you can get. I'm like, oh man, I didn't even see that, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I would be happy to teach you, but I make no guarantees as to making you tournament ready. I'll tell you that right now because um, apparently I'm not that good at it. But it is a fun game. Yeah, we have to set it up, and I'll actually read the rules, and then you can uh, you can just point me to stuff as we move along and that'd be a great way to to start playing that there Better we go trying it out solo i figure yeah no that's a, it's a great game and i would uh, you know welcome the chance to to put my money where my mouth is and try a little asl stuff myself and see if i can get back some of those feelings from uh, earlier uh that i i have such fond memories of so um for chad mccash and um my said i say that right or did i butcher it chad no, you got it right. All right. So for Chad and myself, I'm not even going to try to say it again in case I butcher it the second time. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. So for Chad and myself, uh, I want to thank everybody out there for listening. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the generous host of The Long View, which is 2d6.org. Uh, this is a, a website, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, that you should go and check out. They uh, have fantastic board game reviews, uh, commentary, uh, news, and they also do great designer sort of interview series and interview with industry publishers, insiders, uh, people who just will share. They'll answer your questions that you can post. It's just a, a really wonderful resource for you to, to use. So go check out 2d6.org. I would also... Uh, strongly encourage everyone uh, to take a look at the uh, generous sponsor of the Longview, which is GameSurplus.com. Uh, GameSurplus.com. Yes, it is, isn't it? I mean, you can't yep. really get better customer service than Thor and his family give to you. And uh, 
I, Especially when they bring games to you at the WBC to pick up. Yeah, you can't beat that, can you? Um, yeah, that's great. It is, it is. And, and you know, any time that I've looked for something, you know, like I, I said to uh, Thor, the gentleman who uh, runs GameSurplus.com with his family, I said, hey, I'm really looking forward to Bora Bora. And I know that if Thor can get his hands on a copy of Bora Bora, I'll have it before anybody else. Because you know what? That's what he did for me for Trajan. That's what he did for me for any other game that's just coming out. And I tell him, hey, can you be on the lookout for me? And usually nine times out of ten, he tracks me down a copy. And I'll just get an email from him and say, hey, Jeff, I found a copy of this. You know, Would you like me to set it aside for you? And that's the kind of customer service that I really appreciate. And one of the things that makes GameSurplus.com just such a great uh, website to use if you are uh, a board game fanatic like we are. So, Chad, I want to thank you once again for joining me. And My pleasure. And, you know, to everyone out there, thanks for listening. And go play and uh, check out some ASL. Thanks to everyone, and good night.